Good evening everyone and welcome to Pin Drop at Soho House London. Yeah. I'm uh, Simon Oldfield, I'm the co-founder of Pin Drop and it's a really great pleasure to be here this evening to introduce a, an evening dedicated to women and there are a lot of you in the audience so welcome. Um, you've just seen a film that was screened by, made by my little sister, she's a filmmaker and an artist it explores the objectification of women, looked at through the prism, through the lens of music videos. And in that, she inverted the, the, the male gaze by look at making men perform in the way that women would be expected to perform within, within music videos. And I find that particularly compelling and particularly interesting. It was filmed, it was shown um, in LA and it was shown at Photo Fusion. I know there's someone here from Photo Fusion this evening, so hello, welcome. Um, and then moving on to the rest of the evening, which has been framed around the most brilliant woman, Elizabeth Day, my co-founder and dear friend. We're going to hear from The Party, the stonkingly brilliant fourth book by Elizabeth. It really is quite fantastic. I had the opportunity to read it as in proof and I couldn't put it down. I was there till 2am the other night reading it, reading it, reading it. And then it gets these climatic moments and you just, you know, knowing Elizabeth, you sort of think, my goodness, where's that all come from? But it is, it is just so, so great. Um, and you're going to hear an extract from it. It is a world exclusive, I'm assured. It's the first reading at all from this book. We're going to look at the exploration and the development of a, of a character, a female character within the book. And I think it's going to uh, lead on to a conversation looking at how women are perceived, the assumed roles that they are within the world. Um, and then following on from there, we're going to have Viv Groskop, who I love as well, who's been an enthusiastic fan of Pin Drop since the very beginning. Hello, Viv. Um, Viv is a superb writer, broadcaster and stand-up comedian, so really uh, very honoured to have both of you here this evening. Viv's going to interview Elizabeth about the party, about Jane and have a broader discussion about women in society today. So uh, I'd just like to say one final thing, please feel free to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We wholeheartedly and enthusiastically encourage it, so please go ahead. Um, and Welcome to the stage, Elizabeth Day and Viv Gostrop. Thank you so much, Simon. Do I need to move this up or am I just gently trolling you? <laughs> um, that was such a lovely introduction and it's so lovely to see so many of you here tonight. Thank you. Um, I was actually just really nervous about walking down the stairs and not falling over. Um, I should be more like Mariah Carey, who doesn't do stairs. Um, as Simon mentioned, The Party, my fourth novel, is out in July. Um, it's the story of a man who becomes dangerously obsessed with his male best friend, Ben Fitzmaurice. Um, but it's also the story of a marriage going slightly awry. Martin is married to Lucy, and I'm going to read two extracts. The first is in the voice of Martin, um, and it's about how he's married someone who he used to like but doesn't like so much anymore, and he sees her in a certain way, which is certainly not how Lucy sees herself. And then the second extract um, is a piece from Lucy's perspective. The reason it's called The Party, incidentally, is because um, it all takes place over the course of one night at Ben Fitzmaurice's 40th birthday party. And some of it is told in flashback. Um, it's really fun writing about parties, it turns out. <laughs> um, especially parties of rich and wealthy, glamorous people, of the kind you might find in Soho House. 
So this, to begin with, is from Martin's perspective. I used to like Lucy so much. Truly, I did. Over the years, that like has been dulled, brass left unpolished. The same qualities that drew me to her, an uncomplicated view of the world, her mild eccentricity, her ungroomed refusal to make the best of herself, and above all, her adoration of me, now set me on edge. And then there's the children thing. I'd always told her I didn't want any of my own, and she accepted it in the beginning. But that was before her friends started popping them out with alacrity, posting 12-week scans and pictures of bleary-eyed newborns on Facebook with humdrum frequency. Our socialising changed. It was no longer nights in the pub, but picnics in the park surrounded by screaming toddlers or early evening barbecues, the timing of everything defined by when babysitters could be relied upon to arrive and leave, or when Isadora or Humphrey or Matilda could be put down for their naps. Oh, and isn't Lucy wonderful with kids, they would say. Look at how she plays with them. Forever kneeling down to meet their eyes, taking them by the hand, running after them in a game of tag, her floral dress breezing round her knees. She had six godchildren. But every time she went to Tiffany to buy a silver charm bracelet or engraved tankard for yet another christening, something within her hardened. She lost that yielding softness she once had. I suppose it didn't help that Ben and I were so close. Difficult for any woman to come into that situation and hope to get my undivided attention. But as I often told her, that's the way it had always been. Ben and I went way back. Best friends from school. So close we had at one stage been informally christened by his mother as Starsky and Hutch. Later, Ben's wife Serena had coined a different phrase. You're always there, aren't you, Martin? she had said, Ben's little shadow. For whatever reason, the moniker had stuck. Little shadow. Even Ben calls me it now. I'm in his phone under LS. Lucy. When Serena said casual, she actually meant very smart pretending to be casual. A beautifully cut jacket in the lightest suede. An oatmeal cashmere cardigan flung over the shoulders as an afterthought. Gold chain necklaces with hammered discs of jade and topaz. Jeans that cost hundreds of pounds because they were ripped and zipped in precisely the most flattering places. There was no point in my trying to match up to Serena and her friends, so generally I removed myself from the competition by choosing the most plain, ordinary clothing I could find. I knew Serena thought I had no taste, so did Martin for that matter, but it was done on purpose. I didn't want my clothes to be the most remarkable thing about me. For this dinner, I remember I wore a denim dress over black leggings. I had worn the same thing a few weeks ago and a woman in a shop had stopped and asked when my baby was due. The woman was mortified when I told her I wasn't expecting, but I had found it amusing. And I liked the idea I could have been pregnant. I liked the idea that Serena might think I was. 
Don't you look sweet, Serena said when she opened the door. She kissed me on both cheeks, her skin silky against mine. LS, she said, glad you could come. Oh no, listen, it's always a pleasure, and as always, you're a vision, Martin said, and he was already speaking too quickly and too much. We brought you this, he handed over the bottle of wine we'd spent £25 on in Waitrose, and these, a bunch of flowers in garish colours I knew Serena would hate. Serena accepted them gracefully. You shouldn't have, she said, turning and leading us along the hallway and downstairs into the basement kitchen. The room was filled with a smell of warm pastry. There were three people already seated at the table, and one of them was Ben. Serena put the flowers on the counter, dropping them with such carelessness they might as well have gone straight in the bin. A thin young girl in a white shirt and black trousers handed me a glass of champagne. In the background, a man in an apron was sliding trays of salmon into Serena and Ben's top-of-the-range cooker. It was a monster of a thing in burnished steel with a baffling array of knobs and dials along the front. They had bought it a few years ago, insisting that they needed something this size to cater for their growing family. I'd seen one like it once in a food magazine which featured an at-home interview with a TV chef, and I knew it had cost 75 grand. It's super relaxed, Serena was saying now. Hope you don't mind, guys. No, of course not, Serena. It's so much nicer that way. I always think, don't you, that... I silently willed Martin to be quiet. Darling, LS and Lucy are here. Ben turned. His face was blank. Then his expression shifted. He grinned broadly, threw his arms wide open. Mes amis, he said slipping into French for no discernible reason. It was a thing he did. I used to find it hilarious. Now it drove me mad. Vous êtes les bienvenus. Come, come, take a seat. We sat down at the round table and were introduced to the other guests. Matt, a media lawyer, and Millie, who, like most of Serena's female friends, didn't do anything. The table was dotted here and there with small glass jars, each one containing a single white rose, cut down to length. The napkins were linen. The cutlery had faded yellow ivory handles. I sat facing a wall dominated by a set of shelves containing not books, but scented candles and pieces of sculpture. A bronze dog in miniature, a tribal mask with cut out eyes, a stunted tree whose branches were hung with tiny crystal spheres. On the central shelf, was a silver-framed photograph of Serena and Ben's wedding. Serena was looking off-camera, smiling prettily, and Ben was grinning with his arms around her, his eyes crinkled at the corners. It was in black and white, and I knew the photograph well because we had a copy at home. But our version was wider, expanding to show Martin standing at Ben's side. He wasn't in the photograph in the Fitzmorris kitchen. The evening was fairly unmemorable, except for one incident. We were talking about university because there'd been a news story that morning on the growing number of British teenagers applying to study abroad. That reminds me, Ben, Martin said. Did you get the letter about the Queen's reunion? Yeah, they're always badgering me for money. It's a black tie dinner. I thought it might be rather fun. Rather fun. He had this way of picking up Ben's turns of phrase, and it never sounded right. I don't think Martin even realised he was doing it. 
God, really, Martin? I can't imagine anything worse. Martin sipped his wine. He caught my eye. He seemed uncertain. It was only a suggestion, Martin said. Thought it might be nice to go back, see some of our old haunts. Why this obsession with the past, LS? I'm sick of nostalgia. Ben reached for the decanter of red. Serena lightly tapped his wrist. It was her signal that he'd had too much, and Ben ignored it. He poured the wine high up the glass and then offered the wine to Millie, who shook her head and opened her mouth to say something. We've got to move forwards, Ben said loudly, leaving Millie gawping like a fish. Move forwards. Think of the future. That's the problem with Britain, he continued, making one of those wild cognitive leaps of which he was so fond. Backward looking, always wanting to remind everyone how much fucking history we have. Ben, Serena said. I happen to rather like history, Martin continued, straining to keep his tone jolly. It was my degree, after all. Yeah, 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 Ben leaned forwards, pushing his fork onto the floor with his elbow. We all know you did history and you got a double first and you're extremely bloody clever. Martin sat back as if slapped. Well, look, he started. Are wives invited, I asked. Or are the Cambridge colleges still as institutionally sexist as ever? Ben guffawed. Oh, Lucy, what are we going to do with you? He dabbed at his mouth with a napkin. You look so meek, but you're so fucking feisty. I went to Oxford myself, Matt interjected pointlessly. Everyone ignored him. And I love it, Ben was saying. I love that my best mate Martin ended up with you because, trust me, we really didn't think he... At this point, Serena stood and started collecting plates. There was a clattering sound as she stacked the china. Pudding, she said brightly. Gooseberry fool. I hope that meets with everyone's approval. Oh, fab, Millie trilled. I don't know how you do it, darling, and make it seem so effortless. Staff, I wanted to say. That's how she does it. Instead, I said, you really didn't think he what, Ben? Ben looked at me, his face blank again. I'm sorry? Just then you said you were pleased Martin had ended up with me because you really didn't think he... something. Can't remember, he gesticulated. I was talking nonsense. Sorry, LS. But there was something there, some unease or coolness neither of them wanted to tell me about. Fuck the reunion, Martin said, desperate to be back in favour. It'll be full of wankers anyway. Exactly, Ben said, reaching across to replenish Martin's glass. No need to rake over old memories. Martin cocked his head. No. I noticed Martin's was the only portion of the table without a single crumb or stain around where his plate had been. He could have walked out of the room right then and there would have been no physical trace of his presence. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much for that 
reading, Elizabeth. Um, I'm Viv Groskop. Thank you so much to you uh, all for coming. This, of course, is the wonderful Elizabeth Day. Uh, that was a fantastic evocation of the book, which was swirling in my mind with those images from Francesca Oldfield's amazing film that we saw uh, in the run-up to this event, if, if nobody went blind from watching that film, which I very nearly <laughs> did. Um, so that's given us a brilliant context uh, for this event, celebrating a bit belatedly International Women's Day under the banner of If Women Ruled the World. Um, you've given us a flavour of the dynamics in this book, the party. We have these two couples, Martin and Lucy, Ben and Serena. But it's the power dynamic there is almost a subplot to what's going on. Can you tell us a bit about the setup at the beginning of the book? Yes. And also, I'd like to apologise for all the swearing. I'm really sorry. Um, and my bad voices. Um, the setup of the book, I'm very inspired by films when I write. And I was very inspired by The Talented Mr Ripley, which is one of my favourite films of all time. Uh, I subsequently read the book after I'd written this. But the setup is, is that um, Martin, my primary protagonist, is a boy from the wrong side of the tracks who's been raised by a single mother. And he wins a scholarship to a public school. And at this public school, he fixates on Ben, who's the most popular, wealthy, aristocratic, good-looking boy in his year. And um, he inveigles his way into Ben's life and Ben's family. And that friendship continues. And it's a slightly sort of strange power dynamic. And it continues to university. And then something happens at university that um, perpetually binds them together. Um, and the tensions that are brewing in that friendship, which I hope you got a, a slight hint of there, come to a head on the night of Ben Fitzmaurice's 40th birthday party. Um, so the whole book takes place over the course of one main night and a lot of it is told as in flashback and something happens at that party which involves um, Martin being interviewed in a police station so the whole book opens with a police interview and hopefully you read on to find out what happened. But we know from the first few pages of the book that there's a gender complication in that the first person we hear from is Martin but then it quickly goes into Lucy's voice and we see that within their marriage, things are not quite as balanced as they both think. Yes, so um, Martin is someone who is uncomfortable with himself, fatally uncomfortable with himself. And he has married Lucy because he thinks that he sees in her an uncomplicated friend um, that won't ask too much of him and that who thinks he's wonderful. That's how Martin sees it. Um, Lucy starts off in the book as, as quite a sort of suppressed presence. She is wowed by Martin's intellectual power. But as the book progresses, you get to know much more about Lucy from Lucy's own perspective. And um, part of what fascinates me about writing novels is the idea of the unreliable narrator. So you start off with Martin and you think that you're in kind of comfortable hands and he's going to narrate you through this party. And then you realise when you transpose his vision with what Lucy remembers of that same evening, that actually how he remembers it and how he sees it isn't always accurate. So Lucy grows in strength throughout this book and, and then ends up as really, I mean, an equally important character to Martin. Well, it is, yeah, it's really interesting how it seems to be a book that's going to be about male friendship and the secret at the heart of this male friendship that's revealed at this party. But actually, it turns into a bit of a battle of the sexes, doesn't it? With 
Lucy becoming more and more powerful. It does. Well, yeah. not, we don't want to give anything away, obviously. <laughs> um, Lucy, and that, that was a deliberate choice, actually, for Lucy to be seen initially in this very traditional way. Um, the first section I read, I deliberately chose because it's, it's Martin talking about Lucy's desire to have children. Um, but actually, I think that's often used in fiction and in life as a stick to beat women with, like whether they have children or not, and um, whether if they have children, they deserve to be promoted. I mean, questions as basic as that. And actually, I wanted to make Lucy a really strong woman in her own right, who um, is strong but kind of vulnerable. Like, I actually think the greatest strength comes from vulnerability anyway. And it's about, this book is also about Lucy um, facing up to that, facing up to the fact that she might have married the wrong person and she might not have children and life might not have turned out in quite the way that she wanted. So that's a theme that interests me both in novels and in journalism and mm. in the world. Mm. <laughs> and it's in a direct contrast with uh, what well, that character is, uh, with a character who, uh, even if I think you haven't read uh, Elizabeth's last book, Paradise City, uh, this character became Howard, I'm thinking yeah. of. Um, he is this very... Uh, strong kind of well he's kind of based on philip green right i or mean not, not for legal purposes not, no okay uh, all right we, i didn't say that <laughs> i was inspired um, by some men i'd interviewed and i have interviewed philip green and stuart rose and he's called howard pink so <laughs> okay but just as lucy is a quite a complicated female character howard was a quite complicated male character who dominated that book that was that fun to write it was so much fun Viv because um because I think as women just to generalize horrifically about the sexes um I think a lot of women struggle with their own strength and question themselves and we constantly feel like we're imposters and I realize that this can affect lots of men too um but writing as a male character was so interesting because I was writing as a millionaire. He's like a bombastic, self-made millionaire who never thinks to question his place in the world. I mean, he is just super confident, super wealthy, and is out to have fun. Initially, when you first meet him, you think that's who he is. And to write a character like that was incredibly liberating for me because um, I always question myself in my own head, or I did. And then I started writing Howard and I was like, oh, there's this different way of being. <laughs> and it coincided, actually, um, Viv was incredibly influential in this period of my life. Oh, because I am very influential. You're just influential, generally. generally. <laughs> the end. Um, you introduced me to a book called Playing Big. So, yes, yeah, yes, which is there all about, is such a book, yeah, it's all playing a, big. <laughs> it's all about how women tend to undermine themselves by using lots of mitigating words, like just, um, and so it just might possibly. So I realised that when I was writing emails, um, uh, I, my day job is as a journalist and I would write an email pitching an idea to an editor. And I would start off by saying, I mean, this is probably the worst idea you've ever heard. And I'm so sorry for wasting your time. But I just wondered if possibly you might be interested in this. And um, writing Howard and talking to you about that book um, really changed my attitude and, and to, to this day I make a deliberate effort I will read through every email before I send it and I will take out those words it doesn't make you rude mm. <laughs> it just makes you more empowered mm. but the original uh, inspiration for Howard and the part of that story that comes up in Paradise City the last novel uh, was you mentioned that you moved between fiction and journalism well you had interviewed a number of people involved in the Strauss-Kahn case can you just remind us about that because that's also a really interesting gender narrative yeah. 
So the original inspiration for Paradise City was the incident, I don't know if you remember, involving Dominic Strauss-Kahn, who was head of the IMF at that point and a possible socialist can presidential candidate in France. And um, he was accused by a chambermaid in a New York hotel room of uh, having sexually assaulted her. And um, so the starting point for Paradise City was, what if this happened and we followed the story from the perspective of the man and the perspective of the chambermaid? And they became two big characters in that book. But you're right that through my work as a journalist, I actually went to cover the Dominique Strauss-Kahn trial in Lille, which took place about a year after publication of Paradise City. And his, he was charged with aggravated pimping, which is an actual thing. Um, and he was charged with being part of a very French, effectively like it was a prostitution ring. But the way that um, he and his business associates, associates described it was a bit like it was, you know, it's just a sexy dinner club. And, um, and, and being in that courtroom was astonishing because of the bluster and arrogance of that man and he would walk in every morning and he'd be incredibly kind of pugnacious and he would think he was a film star and some people asked him for autographs as he walked in and that contrasted with these women many of whom had had really really hard lives and had had childhoods of sexual abuse and who had found themselves in desperate situations where to put food in the fridge for themselves and their children they had turned to prostitution and and the contrast between the two testimonies was so um, upsetting actually and 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 the women's stories hardly got reported and I think I mean they did in my piece but I think um, that is a really regular occurrence is that women's stories are underreported and that's why we've only just had a film about the suffragettes made you know these there are incredible stories about female history that because the world I'm really sorry I'm for the men here I mean I'm sure you're all really lovely we, um, are, we are just generally sorry for you actually <laughs> But because, but because so many industries for so long have been dominated by men, um, it means that obviously you make stories that reflect your own experience. And if that's predominantly a white male experience, it marginalises the rest of us. Mm. And I'm noticing um, this is this is pretty close to the final cover for yes. the book, right? Except it has a title on it. Yeah, it's very uh, self-consciously not pink yeah <laughs> uh, or, or it's it, i don't know if people know how difficult it is often for female novelists to get their book published in a way that's neutral um was that something that was important to you and has been important with your previous books so important <laughs> you know me so well um uh, my my previous books i i think for for a while i was just incredibly grateful to be published and again that ties into that whole notion of feeling like a fraud you're just like oh my god I get published thank you um, and therefore I just felt like my publisher knew best and they do because they know how to sell books so my first two novels had well the first one had a, a pinkish photographic cover of a little girl carrying a doll's house on her back and it was it was actually it was quite kind of um, it was a warped kind of cover like it wasn't a sort of chick litty cover um, and it and it and it intimated that dark things were going to happen, but it was still a photographic pink cover, and it didn't really reflect in my eyes what I thought the book was, and I also worried that it would put off um, male readers. Um, and so for the first couple of books that happened, and then Paradise City was a totally graphic illustrated cover which I loved, and but this one I was really I think because I've just got into the flow of things a bit more, and because. 
I hope I'm less apologetic when I don't need to be. And because I actually believe in myself more and believe in this novel, um, they actually, I changed publishers um, and they came up with an initial cover that was a beautiful cover for what I felt was a different book. And I actually spoke up and said, I'm not sure that this is right. And they were amazing about it. And it was such a lesson to be like, actually, I can say something that is instinctively my opinion and people can react well to it because you genuinely believe what you're saying. So then they went back to the, the drawing board and then they invited me in and um, they had already come up with this cover, which I completely loved instantaneously um, because it gives a sense of like the glamour and the debauchery of the evening. I have to say, I did see the other cover and I told Elizabeth to it. choose that one. <laughs> um, but I hadn't read the book at the time and this what is the correct cover. This is the correct cover. When you are writing or starting to write uh, a new book, I can tell that obviously feminist themes are important to you. Do you start to think about how you're going to get them into a book or does the story come first? And how does that all play out when you're planning to write something? Um, the, the story always comes first. Well, actually, for me, the character always comes first. So, and then I have to think about plot. <laughs> then I'm like, no, there should be a plot. Um, and uh, so the characters come first, and then the story comes from that. And I'm never really conscious about writing th about themes. Um, and it's interesting because Lucy, the female character that we've been talking about, was actually a later addition in the party. I had written it purely from Martin's perspective. And um, my wonderful editor, Helen, said, I actually think you need a, a sympathetic female voice. And there's part of me which is like, oh, sympathetic female voice. <laughs> I'm so fed up of writing sympathetic female voices. And then I was like, OK, well, I'll give it a go. And I started writing Lucy and I almost deliberately, it was like a deliberate choice not to write her, by which I mean I wasn't trying to make it really literary and beautiful and like every sentence was perfectly expressed. I just wrote her as a voice of a woman that I feel I know really, really well because she's part, part of her experiences are informed by mine. She's partly women that I know and I'm friends with. And it, it was a voice that came incredibly naturally, so much so that I was worried she was sort of underwritten and not that convincing. But now that the book is completed, the one thing that the vast majority of people who have read it have said is how much they love Lucy and how they feel she is strong and complicated. So I'm really, really pleased about that. But I definitely didn't set out to make her a feminist heroine. Mm, well, that's really interesting. She's a, a really important witness for their friendship. Yeah. Or, or sort of on behalf of the reader. It's fascinating. Um, I want to open up to all the audience. I think we've got a couple of mo roving microphones, if you could put your hand up and wait for one of those. Um, but so we can get on to our theme a bit. Feel free to ask Elizabeth anything you want about writing, journalism, any of her books. Um, but uh, so we can talk about our theme a bit as well, should women rule the world. Um, I wanted to take a straw poll actually from the audience. Um, raise your hand if you think women should rule the world. And if you think they shouldn't? Oh, we're too, too busy. Yeah, if we weren't so busy, we would. But nobody wants to speak against it. OK, it's fairly overwhelming. Good. Um, but uh, before we go to questions, I also want to see what you thought of this, uh, Elizabeth. It's a quote from Aristotle. He says, what difference does it make whether women rule or the rulers are ruled by women? The result is the same. Oh, that's that classic thing of like behind every great man, there's a great woman, which I just think plays into institutionalised sexism 
anyway. It's like, why does the woman have to be behind? Or why does the woman have to secretly, behind the scenes, be ruling the rulers? Like, why can't she have an equal presence? And actually, I, I'm not sure that I do believe women should rule the world, but I feel that women and men in equal partnership should be a part of the world. I mean, again, I think ruling, I'm not sure why ruling is predominantly seen as a kind of male dominating activity. And actually, maybe we should look at um, the notion of ruling in a different way, just to object to the premise of the question. <laughs> but I think that's it's, a, it's that thing about um, feminism isn't about the dominance of one gender over another. It's about equality between the sexes. And that's as liberating for men as it is for women, I think, if feminism is done right. Do you agree, Viv? Well, I think we're saying Aristotle is an outdated sexist. <laughs> it's definitely which outdated. I don't think anyone would disagree with. I'm, I am quite fascinated in the idea that, and it's shown in, in Francesca's film as well, the, in, in, it is an outdated idea, but it persists that women have a terrible, frightening sexual power. And that is uh, an underlying theme in the party as well. It's a power that's very threatening and over the centuries that has been why women haven't been allowed to rule because it's an unspoken thing that they're basically in charge anyway because they are so sexually amazing. Yeah, and, the, and because they're the ones who give birth. Yeah. So there's that idea that kind of giving birth is a sort of miraculous, extraordinary thing, but it's also kind of weird and scary and they're growing these things inside their tummies and... And so there's no sense of understand, like we're only just starting to talk about women and the act of giving birth. There was that amazing MP, um, the Lib Dem MP, I don't know if you saw it in the Houses of Parliament, who was talking about how we should celebrate childbirth and how it's, um, how it's something that isn't spoken about openly. And yeah, that goes, I mean, that goes back to Mary Magdalene and Jesus and the Holy Grail, and uh, that's going into a whole different territory, uh, the Da Vinci Code. But that, that, you're so right, the kind of suppression of female power um, in a way that um, threatened men can understand it as a recurring theme. Yeah, there are a lot of sex scenes in this. I'm really sorry. Simon called me today and was like, oh my God. <laughs> it's quite weird reading them and knowing you. I was like, so yeah. Mm, yeah, there is quite a lot of sex. Uh, please, any questions? So yeah, what you're talking about is the idea that women are actually nicer than men. <laughs> and, and so, it, and it's also about the idea of women not having to behave like men and allowing to yeah. be allowed to be themselves. I think that's really interesting, the notion of self-doubt being a good thing. So I think um, considered thinking is definitely a great thing. And it's a great thing not to come to a question and be completely certain of your own answer without listening to other opinions. And, and I think for centuries people have, well actually we live in an age of constant opining <laughs> and people having knee-jerk reactions to things. And whether it's a male or a female attribute or both, the idea that you can actually think about something and question yourself and your own prejudice is of integral importance to any person and any character that I would write. But I think self-doubt becomes negative when it is um, directed inwards at who you think you are and who you perceive yourself to be and how worried you are about how other people see you. And it becomes a sort of form of self-loathing and it can actually sort of hold you back from making decisions and speaking up. Um, so I think one needs to be really careful about the delineation between the two. But I definitely think that thought, <laughs> thought and thoughtfulness and um, kindness are very, very important attributes. Wise words indeed. <laughs>
So the question is about what it's like for you to write from the male perspective. Yeah, and whether I find it difficult writing as a man. And weirdly, I don't <laughs> at all. And I, and I don't know what that says about me, but maybe what it says is that we're all just people. And um, even though I'm probably undermining my own, I think there's no, I think, I don't think we're born with a male or female outlook. I think those are things that are sort of inherited culturally and socially. So if I could strip, or I, if I mentally can strip that back, then actually writing in a male, male voice, I really, really enjoy it. Um, but I was worried when I was writing it that it wasn't convincing. And I also, you know, it's just like practical stuff. Like I have, I'm going to sound obsessed by sex, but I've never had sex as a man. And um, I don't know, you know, what it feels like to have a prostate ailment or something. Like it's, it's kind of those sorts of things that... Um, you have to think yourself into. But I always return to a quote given by Sebastian Fawkes, um, where he was talking about how imagination is a muscle that you have to flex. And people are often terrified at the thought that as a novelist, you have such extensive imagination. And he tells a story about how when he published Birdsong, his incredible novel about the First World War, he was touring the country and people were asking him all the time, you know, did you have a grandfather who fought on, on the Western Front and he would say no I just invented it all and people were affronted that he had just invented it but actually that's where it all comes from and and I hope that I do it successfully and actually with the party there's a whole um, element of it that's set in a boys boarding school and again I've got no idea what it's like to be a boy at boarding school um, and I remember the first time I read a passage to my lovely boyfriend, who also put his hand up, by the way, when he said women should rule the world. Um, and I was Wise really man. relieved. I was really relieved when he was like, no, that sounds convincing. <laughs> um, so I find, yeah, no, I, I, like, I like both. I like both. Uh, the really hard one is a child's perspective, because you have to um, leave at the door so much of your knowledge that you've gathered through life. You've got to think yourself back into a place of naivety. Novelists are good at making things up. Who knew? <laughs> so oh, this is a this is a big question. It's sort of Nicola Sturgeon versus Theresa May. What do you think of female leaders? Well, and I'm wondering, have you interviewed any of these people? Do you know people who have interviewed them? I have. I um I was meant to interview Theresa May on the day that she became prime minister, and then she had to cancel because apparently she had better things to do, like ruling the country. I have written a profile of her. I wrote a profile of her when she was home secretary and spoke to contemporaries of hers from university and stuff like that. And um, uh, I, I've interviewed other female politicians, but sadly not Nicola Sturgeon or Theresa May. Um, uh, I think it's great that there are more women in positions of power because the optics are really important. It's very important for young children growing up to see that people of both genders can do anything that they set their minds to. So that's incredibly important. And whatever your politics are, I just think that's of crucial value. And when I grew up, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and Kate Adie was on television. And those were my two um, kind of role models for seeing what could be done and leaving, again, leaving aside all kind of political opinion. Um, it was really important to me to see that that could be done. And I think the more of that we get, the better. But it's interesting that it goes hand in hand with what's happening in the States and the election of a president who has openly boasted about groping women um, and who has very dubious responses to all manner of things. And um, I think, 
I think it's an interesting time because on the one hand, I feel like it's so much more acceptable to say that you're a feminist now. And there are all these brilliant like young feminists coming up and it's almost weird to say you're not a feminist and that would get more attention than the other way around. Um, and, you know, I remember it, when I started out in journalism, like it was a much more sexist environment. Um, and you were still accused of like having slept with the editor if you were doing well and all that sort of stuff. So on the one hand, that's brilliant. And then on the other hand, you have this kind of groundswell of negative opinion about race and gender. And you have people who are very angry about having been overlooked. And, and it will be interesting to see how our f strong female leaders deal with that. What do you think, Viv? Well, I'm interested to know what um, Theresa May's contemporaries said oh. for that piece. <laughs> Did they say anything that has subsequently made you reevaluate her? Um, what was really interesting about her is that I, I, I wrote a profile of Theresa May and I also wrote one about a year earlier of George Osborne. And when I say profile, like I didn't speak to the person themselves. I spoke to their friends, people who knew them, members of their family, colleagues, and built up a picture of them. George Osborne, there were so many anecdotes. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was like, I found out that he snogged Jerry Halliwell at a wedding. Um, there was all this stuff about him at it the Bullingdon Club. It doesn't make him any better, does it? <laughs> no. Um, he, there was all this stuff about the Bullingdon Club, which again, actually really influenced the party. There's a whole kind of Bullingdon Club-esque aspect to it. And with Theresa May, there was no dirt. And I tried really hard. I really did try to build up a picture of her. And actually, um, her contemporary said, she was always very um, decent. She was a very decent person. She always went to church regularly. She had very strong principles. Um, she was reliable and nice, but she wasn't exceptional. They didn't see the charisma in her that would make her a natural prime minister. Um, but she was sort of very good at debating and she occasionally cracked a joke. And, but it was all very, you know, and she met her husband at university. So I think from a, quite an early age, she was, she was very well behaved and she's the daughter of a vicar. So um, that's what they said. Um, and it would be much better if she had snogged Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> so much better, especially for the theme of this evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, proper ruling. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts, fantasy scenarios involving <laughs> Theresa May and Jerry Halliwell? Yes, go ahead. Well, a very good classic question about nature versus nurture. And this must be something that you think about when you're creating your characters as well. Yes, it's very cool. This is really intellectually stimulating, this discussion. Thank you. I feel bad then that I'm not an expert or trained in any of this. Um, but um, yes, it's really interesting because I, my personal belief is that um, I don't have children. Um, Viv can probably enlighten me because Viv has three. Um, some people tell me that when you have a child, they are born with their own personality and their own character and they just always are going to be kind of that person. My personal belief is that um, environment, upbringing and nurture has, has a lot, um, has an enormous amount of influence on certain things. Um, and so I don't believe people are born bad or good, for instance. What I do believe is that some people can have a very, very strong feeling of gender and that that isn't always reflected in the body that they are born in. And um, I think the whole transgender debate, which again is an example of being able to be much more open about things that we never really acknowledged in the past, is a really interesting one because it challenges a lot of our presumptions. And there's an amazing book called Far From The Tree, I think, uh, the Andrew Solomon book. And it's, um, there's a chapter in that about transgender. 
and he cites um, a horrific experiment that was done in the States, um, I think in the 1950s, and um, two identical twins who were born male, one was raised as a woman and one was raised as a boy, and um, the one who was raised the wrong gender had an incredibly difficult life and ended up committing suicide. So I think there's like, um, I think you can be born a certain way and feel a certain thing in that respect. But on top of that, I don't think there's a male way of being or a female way of being. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yes, it makes perfect sense. I think it's all sense. up for discussion. Yeah. And I feel, like, I feel like you should be free to be who you want to be, obviously. And, um, and society, in many cases, should form, um, should, should provide an environment which is nurturing rather than repressive. What do you yes. think? No, well, I, 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 well I, I agree with Simone de Beauvoir, who said, we are not born a woman, we become one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's a whole other massive discussion. Well, she's so interesting um, as well, because she talks about the language of the other and that notion that language itself is male because it's been designed by men. And therefore, um, a woman's role is always the object having stuff done to it rather than the subject. So that's a whole other discussion, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There was another question at the back, I think. Or there's yes, there's one there and one there. Yes, go ahead. Who's your favourite female interviewee? Um, um, I, my favourite recent female interviewee, I really like um, women, I love interviewing women who are over 70 <laughs> um, because they are brilliant and have loads of life experience and don't care as much as a starlet who's like in her early 20s. And I recently interviewed the artist Maggie Hambling, um, which was wonderful. It was just like a riotous glimmer into her fabulous life. And she chain smoked throughout and she showed me through her studio and she was just funny and interesting and had thought a lot about the world. And then um, she's this, she's fascinating. And she is a kind of, you know, she's a really left wing, um, liberal-minded person and I remember towards the end of the interview her phone her mobile phone went off and it was the national anthem <laughs> it was her ringtone <laughs> and I was like is that is that actually is that your ringtone she's like yes I'm a fervent royalist and it was so unexpected and I do think the best interviewees are the most unexpected and Maggie Hambling is someone who has completely challenged all sorts of boundaries um, gender artistic um, the other thing that she did which I loved her for was that she showed me around her house and there was an enormous cactus in her studio. And she said sort of offhand, and she's like, oh, Barbara Hepworth gave me that. I was like, what? <laughs> and I know I'm a massive fan of Barbara Hepworth because Simon actually introduced me to her work because um, he and his husband have a house in St. Ives and Barbara Hepworth lived there. And there's an incredible sculpture garden of Barbara Hepworth there. And I got really into her. And I said to Maggie Hambling how much I love Barbara Hepworth, who says amazing things about art, by the way, and about how, um, you can't seek to impose your vision on a piece of stone. You just have to let the stone speak to you, which again, I think is just a great kind of writing lesson. And um, Maggie Hambling gave me a cutting of the cactus to grow myself. And she's like, I, I like the idea of you growing a bit of Barbara Hepworth's gift to me. So. Wow, that was a great story. <laughs> there was another question over here, yes. A comment about how 
women and men age differently and how ageism is just as important as sexism. And while you were mentioning that, I was thinking about that wonderful character you have in Home Fires, your first novel. Second. Is, uh, yeah. Sorry, second novel. <laughs> the Older Lady. Elsa. Yes. Yeah. And that's a beautiful older character with real life experience. Yeah, thank you. I think that's an amazing comment, by the way. And um, I like, I also like writing older women. So Elsa is in her 80s, 90s actually, she's in her 90s. And she remembers a time when her father went to war um, during the First World War and came back a very damaged man. And she's a product of her upbringing because he was unhappy um, and raised her unhappily and was quite brutal to her in a way that she didn't understand. And so she becomes this slightly bitter older woman, but there's, but it's, that's not the whole story. Um, and I loved exploring her because she was so multi-layered and because she didn't have the privileges that her daughter-in-law, who's another major character in that book, had. And I think you're so right because female privileges aren't just, it's not just about the right to vote, which is an obvious um, legal precedent. So we were able to pass a law um, and that's amazing and everyone should vote all the time because of it. But it's also about more um, subtle changes. It's about uh, the right to get out of a relationship if you're unhappy. Um, it's about being able to see and talk about emotional abuse, or it's about um, the right not to have children if you don't want, or, or and it's about all of these more subtle things um, that I'm I'm incredibly grateful to my mother and my grandmother um, for 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 sort of living through life in a way that enables us to benefit from that, and and I think we live in a really interesting time for women because of medical advances as well so there's all sorts of kind of biological stuff that we don't need to worry about as much anymore and that in itself is a liberation and you're totally right that the argument about gender should always include older generations who have much to teach us yeah well, on that later, my favourite need to draw this pin drop event to a close, but we're going to continue the discussion afterwards in the bar. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for being such a wonderful audience for your great comments and questions. And Elizabeth Day, may your cactus grow strong. <laughs> may you age beautifully. May you rule the world. Thank you so much for this insight into your life and your work. The party is available to pre-order on Amazon. I think it's an amazing book. It's so twisty and turny it will drive you crazy but in the best way uh, so thank you so much to all of you and thank you elizabeth day